This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today we're going to be talking about equitable participation in math classrooms. Many math educators, and hopefully most math educators, uh, are very concerned with the participation levels of students, and they want that to be equitable. We don't want to just have the same student sharing their thinking over and over again while the rest of the class just sits and listens to that. Or we don't want to be going to the same students with our challenging thinking questions and then other students with kind of memorization or lower level questions. We really really want to open up participation for students to be able to participate in rich and robust ways. But how can we monitor that? How can we kind of systematically check the participation levels and the equity of that participation in our math classrooms? My guest, Neeral Shah, has been working on that exact issue, and I'm really excited to be here to talk with him about it. Um, Neeral Shah is an assistant professor in the Department of Teacher Education from Michigan State University. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Sam. So we're going to be talking about his article with Daniel Reinholtz uh, that was published this year in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. And that article is called Equity Analytics, a Methodological Approach for Quantifying Participation Patterns in Mathematics Classroom Discourse. Um, but Neeral, I'm really excited to talk, talk about that article, and I'm really fascinated with classroom discourse, and it's one of the areas that I enjoy kind of analyzing and, and digging into deeply. But before we get there, I always like to start with uh, grad school. So I want to ask you where you did your grad studies and what the focus of your dissertation was. Sure. So uh, I did my grad work at uh, UC Berkeley. My advisor was Alan Schoenfeld. Mm, um, I've heard I, of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was very fortunate to have a, a wonderful committee. Um, Nayela Nasir was on my committee, and I had two uh, race scholars, Zeus Leonardo, who's a critical social theorist, and uh, Michael Omi, who some people might know, who's been instrumental in, in development of uh, race theory. So my dissertation was on racial discourse in uh, math classrooms, and what that means is I was interested in how racial narratives about math ability get deployed in social interactions between students. So this was an ethnographic study, and I was interested in when race comes up, what is the impact on students' identities and participation in math classrooms, mm. and also how it comes up, both explicitly and implicitly. Yeah, that's an interesting topic as well. Um, and people can look for your work on that if they're interested in that. But with the Jeremy article, it is still related to these equity issues and kind of how participation is happening in the discourse is happening in the classroom. So I want to ask you about how your work with um, Daniel Reinholtz, how did that get started? What was the kind of origin of this article? There's a couple threads to that. Uh, so Dan and I were in grad school together at Berkeley. Okay. And so we both worked with Alan while we were there. And uh, one of the main projects was the True Math Project. Mm -hmm. So Dan and I were, were part of the team that worked on that. Uh, and I think for, for both of us, we realize the value in developing tools, right, that, that can be used in the field, right, mm -hmm. by, by practitioners uh, and potentially also be of use to researchers. And so I think that was partly in our minds. And um, I think also both Dan and I have strong equity commitments. Mm -hmm. And we come at it from different points of view. Dan is focused more on higher ed. I've been more, more, more focused on K-12. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of what is happening in terms of tools uh, for practitioners in terms of equity, Right. Mm -hmm. Like what are the concrete ways that practitioners can get some data on what's happening in terms of yeah. equity and inequity 
That was sort of a driving thrust behind right. the work. Because with equity conversations, it's easy for them to just stay as conversations, kind of like abstract ideas about equity and, and people expressing that they care about it. But we need something concrete to be able to have action items and be able to tell what we're doing and what's happening, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, part of this also, the other thread relates to my dissertation, because one of the things that students told me through that study is that one place where they see race coming up implicitly is in their perceptions of who's participating and who's mm -hmm. not in whole class discussions. Yeah. And that wasn't a focus of that study, but it was one of the findings that came out. And it got me thinking, what's a way we could actually track that? Because this idea of tracking participation patterns, I wouldn't say is, is a new idea. I think teachers have been doing it mm -hmm. in some form or, or another for a long time. Yeah. I think Dan and I, our sort of goal was to create some kind of system where they could, like you said, systematically track those things. Mm -hmm. And have the kind of reliability and validity kind of measures that we hope for at the scholarly level as well. That's right, yeah. So um, we're going to get more into that tool, um, and it's actually available for people. But before that, I want to kind of go back to this issue of just equitable participation and, like, the core of that. So I said at the beginning, you know, hopefully most math teachers, math educators have this goal of equitable participation. But what would you say to somebody who actually disagrees with that goal? Like, what about somebody who says... It's not really realistic to expect equitable participation from different students because students are so different. They have individual personalities. Some of them are shy. Some of them are more outgoing. Some of them want to say more. Um, they might have differences in their mathematical ideas themselves. And so some of those might be more valuable to the learning goals of the lesson or this kind of variety of things that would say, you know what, I actually am not expecting equitable participation. I am kind of expecting to let the shy kids kind of off the hook more because that's respecting their personality. Like, how would you respond to that, somebody who kind of comes from that perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I'm a former high school math teacher and I work with a lot of teachers. Um, I have worked with a lot of teachers during my career and this will come up, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a good question, I think, to talk about. So one thing I'll say about participation is that there's a lot of different ways that kids can participate in classrooms, right? Mm -hmm. So in our our work, we tend to focus on talk-based participation, but obviously that's not the only way, right? There's a lot of more kind of nonverbal ways, um, subtle ways that students can participate. I think a lot of teachers do good work uh, in trying to elicit different forms of participation. Mm -hmm. The reason why we've been focusing on, on talk-based participation, why we think that every child should engage um, in different ways in talk in classrooms Part of that is the research we know, right, about the learning benefits of, of engaging, right, in mathematical discourse. But the other part is an identity issue. Uh, and I hear, here's where I think social markers like race, gender, language status, uh, these kinds of social markers are relevant. So imagine a classroom where everyone has, has A's in the class. It's a, everyone's doing very well performance-wise, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to move on to the next math class and they're going to be just fine in their mathematical careers moving forward. But it turns out in that class, the only students that actually speak in whole class discussions are Asian, white, uh, language dominant boys in the class, for example, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, Latinx girls, uh, black children, right? Other students from marginalized groups, they never get opportunities to speak, right? In the public whole class space. One reason why I think that's a problem is that everyone else in the class, they're learning right? Not just the mathematical content, but they're also learning who's smart and who's not, who can, who's good at math and who's not. Mm -hmm. And all of that is already mediated mm -hmm. by narratives about gender and race mm -hmm. that intersect with narratives about math ability. And also who gets the floor or who's worth listening to. 
and yeah. who's not is the, those messages are being communicated too, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, as a high school teacher, I don't think I understood whole class discussions in those terms. I thought it was mainly a space for content learning. Mm-hmm. And now through the research, I realized that there's actually a lot more going on there. And it's really important that every student gets identified as mathematically brilliant, right? And so being able to show that through talk in whole class discussions, I think is very, very important. Hmm. I'm speaking with Neeral Shaw about his article with Dan Reinholtz and JRME uh, on equity analytics. So the main you know, central feature of this article is the equip tool. Um, and equip is equity quantified in participation. And so I want to first let you kind of plug the tool in case people are curious about it, but then we're going to talk about it some more. Um, so first, where can people find the tool? And then second, how did the tool kind of conceptually get put together? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have turned Equip into a web app that is free, and the URL is equip.ninja. Nice. Okay, so .ninja um, turns out to be something that teachers tend to remember. Um, and so so it's equip.ninja, and it's a completely free and customizable tool. And we made it free because we want people to, we, we really care deeply about this problem. We're not interested in monetizing it. Yeah. Um, we want teachers to actually use it. That's That sounds great. Um, how was it kind of conceptually put together? And then we'll kind of go through some of the main elements of it. What, you know, one of the challenges myself, you know, having been in the classroom and now being in the university setting, is that how do you build theoretically and kind of methodologically robust tools that um, are still kind of feasible for teachers to use, right? Mm -hmm. Teachers are really busy, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and classrooms are really complex spaces. We know this from from research. So how do you build a tool that's accessible, that's not necessarily going to tell you everything about equity and inequity, but could tell a teacher enough that they actually could make some productive changes to their practice, Mm -hmm. right? To remedy inequity. So a key idea here is the relationship between equity and equality, Mm -hmm. right? So we know that equity and equality are not the same things, Mm -hmm. right? So briefly, we can say equality implies sameness. Everyone's getting the same kinds of opportunities. And equity, I would say, is a a more historical idea, right? So that's something that is responding to histories of injustice, which means that in the present, Responding to those inequities might mean that different kids need and get different things, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a difference between those two things. Now, in practice, it's really hard to concretize equity, mm-hmm. right? And oh, like, yeah. there's been a lot of work around that. But for I think for a teacher day to day, that's a really kind of hard thing to do. It's it's highly subjective. So we keep striving for equity, but in the equip work, uh, what we try to do is use equality uh, as a waypoint towards equity. Mm-hmm. Right. So what we say is that on a conceptual level, I think I've yet to meet one person who has disagreed with the idea that at minimum, kids from historically marginalized groups deserve at least the same opportunities as everyone else in the class. I see. Right. So we can assume that equality is a baseline. Equality is at least an improvement from what might be happening if we weren't paying attention at all. Yeah, that's yeah. that's right. Um, and I think that's sort of that kind of pragmatic kind of perspective on mm-hmm. on issues of, of equity and inequity is sort of the stance that we take um, in the in the equip work. So if we are aiming for equality as a, you know, stopping point along the way towards maybe more robust equity down the road, what would be the unit of analysis that we that we kind of would conceptually think about? Because I could imagine, you know, thinking about, oh, the discussion overall or the, the class, you know, year-long wise, or is it like the words that they say? Like, what, what unit do you take for the equip tool? Right. So uh, with our focus on talk-based participation, our unit of analysis is what we call the participation sequence. Roughly what that means is that every time a new student says something 
in a whole class discussion, that's the beginning of a new participation sequence. Mm -hmm. So participation sequences could be nine turns long, mm -hmm. for example. If it's with the same student. If we, yeah, exactly. If there's okay. a back and forth between the teacher and the student that lasts you know, nine, ten turns, all of that we, we code as one participation sequence. Okay. On the other hand, if you have a classroom where there's a lot of um, student-generated talk that's kind of rapid-fire going back and forth, one, one kid says something, then another kid, participation sequences could be one turn long. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the teacher could talk a lot within a participation sequence. I mean, so it could be a student brings up something and then the teacher goes on for quite a while talking about that thing. Would that still be a single participation sequence because it's still based on that first student? Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. Um, and kind of in, in terms of coding, one of our principles is to give the benefit of the doubt to the classroom activity and to the teacher in particular. Mm -hmm. So if we have nine turns, let's just say as an example, where students are saying stuff, Teachers are saying stuff, they might be asking questions, right? Students might be responding with responses of varying length. The way we code is along our particular dimensions, which I, which I know we're going to talk about, we're going to give the benefit of the doubt to a higher level of coding for a given dimension. Okay. So for example, let's say the teacher asked two questions, mm -hmm. right? One was a, kind of a lower level question, one was a higher level question during a sequence. We'll code the entire sequence as a higher level question okay. to kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the okay. teacher. Yeah, so you're you're basically trying to give them credit when you are seeing the the higher stuff. You're like, all right, we'll give you credit for that. That's right. Yeah. So you mentioned the dimensions. Um, I wondered if you want to kind of run down those for us, and then maybe you can give us some illustrations that help us wrap our heads around um, those dimensions. And of course, I should tell the listeners um, these are laid out very nicely in the Jeremy article. There's a nice table um, with the dimensions, and then there's some nice figures later to kind of show the analysis that you've done with them. But in this audio format, maybe you could just kind of try to run through them and give us a few examples to help us uh, see what they look like. Sure. So I can talk uh, through a few of them. So um, when we work with teachers around Equip, one of the things they're really interested and um, potentially concerned about is the kinds of questions that they're asking their students. Yeah. Right. And so they're worried about, am I inadvertently privileging, you know, giving only higher level questions to certain kids and not others. Yeah. Right. So that's something that um, is kind of a key dimension for us. And we have a coding scheme, a, kind of a simple scheme to, to analyze that. Um, and also the literature tells us, right, that the kinds of questions that teachers ask matter for the kind of learning, right, mm -hmm. that comes out of that. Mm -hmm. So there are some things on the teacher side that we track. So teacher questions, one of them. Another one is wait time. Right. So just just giving students an opportunity to think right before uh, the teacher might actually call on someone to respond to a question. Mm -hmm. And the, the speed of that, I think, especially in a math classroom, <laughs> makes a really big difference. Like mm. I think most math teachers know that if they put a question out there and they don't really give much wait time, the kid who always responds mm. is going to immediately raise their hand and that participation will get privileged. So giving some more wait time right. is going to open up the uh, conversational floor a little bit for more participation. Yeah, it's not just the fastest student anymore. You're like, no, let's let everybody process it, and now we have more students who might be able to chime in. That's right. Yeah. Something else on the uh, teacher side, we look at explicit evaluation. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea that uh, once a student responds with an answer or an idea or explanation, what does the teacher do with that? And so here we're, we're, we have a really simple scheme of whether the, the teacher says um, whether they evaluate it or not, right? So they, they might say, oh, good idea, Sam, right? I like that, or that's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the idea is if, if a teacher is constantly evaluating, there are times to evaluate student thinking, but if a teacher is constantly doing that, mm -hmm. right, uh, especially if students might be providing, you know, partial ideas or, or somewhat incorrect ideas, what does that do for the student participation moving forward, right? So that's something we, we track on as well and how that's, how that's distributed by race, gender, and so on. Yeah, the way I've talked about that with my undergrad students is 
if the teacher is constantly evaluating, like it's almost like a reflex thing where I'm, I'm going to say whether it's right or wrong, or I'm going to say whether it's good or great or bad, I feel like it can give the impression to the class that this is actually constantly a test. Like everything right. that we're doing here is a test. It's either a verbal test or it's, you know, we're going to, the homework is a test. And then you say something tomorrow, that's going to be a test. And I, I don't feel like that's a very rich uh, learning environment to like work through you know, sticky issues or concepts and stuff. If you feel like everything I say is actually being evaluated and tested, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, and I think related to that is where kind of mathematical authority gets centralized. Oh yeah. Right. Sure. Like who's, who's the arbiter of what's happening? Is it the teacher or is this a space for some legitimate kind of uh, sense making and kind of working out of right. these ideas? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about some of the teacher things uh, on the student side. What does the tool help reveal? Uh, so one of the dimensions related to student talk is um, kind of the, the it mirrors the teacher question scheme. So teacher asks a question, right, of, of a varying kind of level. It might be a, a why level explanation question, how level more procedural, or kind of a what level question. On the student side, we have a similar scheme. So the question question for us is when a student responds, are they giving explanations, right? Or are they explaining more procedure or are they giving more sort of just a factual response? So the type of student talk is, is one dimension we track. Another one is just the length of student responses. Mm -hmm. And so in this particular study, we do it a little bit differently when we use equip um, kind of in practice with teachers. But for the for this particular study, we looked at just the number of words that were spoken uh, in, in a given turn during a participation sequence. Okay. You know, this kind of harkens back to uh, back in grad school, I was on a project uh, with Alan, uh, but also with Phil Darrow mm -hmm. uh, in, in San Francisco. And one thing that Phil said at the time that really stuck with me, he said... Um, when he works with principals and goes into classrooms, one thing he's looking for is something really simple. Do kids get a chance to say a second sentence mm -hmm. when they're talking? Yeah. And I think for him, uh, and I agree, that is, you know, an indicator of whether they actually get a chance to explain their reasoning. Mm -hmm. um, it it's kind of pairs well with um, just the type of student talk. So the length of student talk is something that we track as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times a teacher... They're not intentionally trying to take something away from the student, but a student says an idea and the teacher sees where they're going and then the teacher takes the second sentence or the third sentence. And, you know, it's because the teacher's like, oh, yeah, I see. That's great. And I want to, you know, I want to amplify this out to the whole class. But in doing that and kind of in the excitement of the moment, you have taken that second sentence or that third sentence from the student and maybe they would have continued on themselves. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so those are really interesting dimensions and to kind of track them. And like I said, I've had a lot of interest in classroom discussions over the years, so this is exciting for me to see it all kind of coming together in this tool. Um, and I'll refer the listeners again to the equip.ninja URL or to the Jeremy article, because um, we haven't gone through all of the details of the tool, but it is there for people if they want to use it. But next I want to ask you, when you have actually taken this tool and used it in classrooms or with teachers, how did it work and what did you feel was the new insights that were gained because of the specific kind of way that this tool was built? Right. So I think, let me kind of describe the three levels of kind of information that Equip gives a teacher, mm -hmm. right? So one is sort of just aggregate classroom level information. Mm -hmm. So if you're tracking on like the kinds of questions that you're asking as a teacher, the first thing Equip will do is kind of break down, well, 22% of your questions were Y level, 15% mm -hmm. were how level, right? And so mm -hmm. on. The next level, it'll show you by individual student. Yeah. Basically a histogram of like participation, mm -hmm. right? So you'll know that, you know, Marco's par participated 40 times across these X number of observations, but um, 
you know, Shanice only participated one time, mm -hmm. or there were three kids who participated zero times. That's been very eye-opening for yeah, teachers we work with. To go with to the to individual that. student level, yeah. Because it gives you a really easy way to see patterns of domination and marginalization. Mm -hmm. But the third level, uh, where I think this is the reason why Dan and I really built the tool in the first place, um, is Equip lets you answer the who question. So you have all these discourse dimensions that we're tracking, but the question is who gets access to those things, right? Who's getting these questions? Who's getting different amounts of wait time? Mm -hmm. And so that's where you're, you're getting information broken down by the social markers that you care about, mm -hmm. right? And so it's customizable. And so usually teachers we work with care about race and gender mm -hmm. um, a lot, uh, but the, you can customize it to, to anything you think might mm -hmm. be uh, hierarchical. Mm -hmm. So as an example of how this played out for one teacher in, the, in, the, in this Jeremy paper, uh, this teacher, Miss J, was... Highly experienced teacher, very equity-minded teacher. I would say one of the best teachers I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the start of the project, um, when we were going to analyze her videos of her teaching, she was pretty clear-eyed that, you know, we're, gonna, we're probably going to see a mixed bag of some things that are more equitable and some things that are less equitable. Yeah. Which I think she wasn't quite sure, like, what those things were going to be, which I think shows the value of the tool. So what mm -hmm. ended up happening, I'll give you the example on the race data. Mm -hmm. So in this class, um, I think it was like 70% black, uh, and I think about 15% Latinx, 50%, 15% white students. And it turned out that black student participation was um, statistically significant in terms of over being overrepresented in the class, right? Mm. Now, in terms of how we think about equity and equality, it's an interesting conversation about what that, what that means, right? So technically speaking, it's an inequality, right? Mm -hmm. They had an unequal amount of representation, even though it was higher mm -hmm. than their demographics would predict. Mm -hmm. But is that equitable, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that as we've done the research, work with teachers with Equip, it keeps coming up, mm -hmm. right? And Equip mm -hmm. doesn't tell you. I was going to say, that... Equip, can't Equip just have a big banner that comes on? You're equitable today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting because in some of my other research uh, around gender, I've had teachers who... The equip data shows that girl participation in their class is overrepresented. And these are these are women teachers, but they feel conflicted about whether that's a good thing, right? So they feel ambivalent. On the one hand, they, they recognize that this is sort of, uh, they want to empower girls in mathematics mm -hmm. in response to histories of marginalization. Yeah. At the same time, they worry that, well, it's not equal. Yeah. And so that, and that's an interesting space to be in. I think teachers need to kind of grapple with that a little bit more. Yeah. But in the context of, of this teacher in the paper, so black student participation was overrepresented, but Latinx student participation was severely underrepresented, mm. right? And this came as a complete surprise. And just watching the videos, this isn't something you would necessarily pick up on. Mm. And I would also argue that just being a teacher, right? Having been a teacher orchestrating complex spaces like whole class discussions, yeah, no. you just can't keep track of these things, right? right? Yeah, yeah. You've got a lot. You've got the mathematical threads that you're trying to keep going. And then you might have certain goals for certain students, but then... Yeah, there's so much to manage in that. Yeah, I think having a tool could be really valuable to just help you kind of afterwards sort of see like, all right, how did that go? Let me look specifically at what I care about and how it turned out. My guest is Neeral Shaw from Michigan State University, and uh, I can tell you're very passionate about this work, um, and it's great to hear you talking about it. You must have some next steps, some things that you're doing, you know, following up on the Jeremy article or following up on this tool in particular. Yeah, so our, our goal with this always was to actually um, have it affect practice. So the Jeremy article is really um, fleshing out the methodology, 
and and using equip to basically analyze one classroom, mm-hmm. then, establishing validity and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To make sure that the, that the, the research is, is supporting what we're doing, mm-hmm. and then the next step, uh, and this is this this kind of work is is already underway, um, is to actually use equip. And now that we have the web app, uh, it's much more feasible with teachers on a recurring basis. So mm-hmm. one example of a project uh, that uh, Beth Herbal Eisenman at Michigan State and I have been engaged in. Mm-hmm has been using equip as part of action research cycles mm. over the course of a school year with middle school math teachers in Michigan. And so every about six weeks, uh, we videotape their classrooms, run those videos through equip code using equip, uh, and then share the analytics with the teachers, mm. right. And help them in reflecting on what the data mean, because the quantitative analytics, right. The numbers tell you something, but they don't tell you everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's really teachers, professional knowledge and judgment that comes into play in making sense of what those numbers mean and then supporting the teachers in making changes to their practice. And so this past year, this is a project that we engaged in. Uh, we saw some promising results mm-hmm. and also some things that were, were very interesting and, um, mm-hmm. and confusing, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, just because I think teachers get data, right, doesn't mean that it's automatically going to lead to uh, productive changes in practice. So mm-hmm. that's a complex space, whether it's about equity or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the that's a general type of work that we're engaged in now. Right. And giving the teachers agency to help define the change that they want to make, right? So it's not that they come to the equip team and then you tell them, oh, here, we looked at your data. This is what you need to do tomorrow. Or this is what you need to do in general. You're, it's really a conversation with them for them to kind of decide, okay, this is what I want to change based on what I'm seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dan and I, from the beginning, our, our thought was build a tool that's going to support and empower teachers, right? So Equip doesn't tell you how to teach, right? It doesn't tell mm-hmm. you what goals you should set, mm-hmm. but it gives you some information on your practice that maybe you didn't have before. The other thing I want to say is that it's been very important to us uh, throughout this work that Equip never gets used to evaluate teachers, mm-hmm. So the idea, again, is support and empowerment. Um, you, can, you can see misuses of a tool like this mm-hmm. um, where it's being used to evaluate teachers and sort teachers and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just feel like that's not a productive route. Yeah, I can see that being a concern, especially making it freely available. So that means people could take it and use it for different purposes than you intended. Do you have any kind of way to kind of be on the lookout for that or just trying to... Do you have a disclaimer that can come with it? or? Well, you know, th- yeah, this is, a, like you said, it's a challenge when you put a tool out there, uh, yeah. whether it's uh, free or, or for pay. And um, I think on the, on the website, uh, we try to emphasize that in multiple places. Yeah. Um, and I think sort of just like the, the ethos we try to communicate around, around the tool uh, mm-hmm. signals that it's about support, mm-hmm. not evaluation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, just like any tool, uh, yeah. you can't kind of control once it's out in the world. But we hope that um, we hope that people use it for its intended purpose. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you about it. Um, again, like I said, people should definitely check out the article, um, especially the way that you show the graphs of what the Equip tool can actually produce in terms of those levels of analytics. Uh, it's really nice to see. But... I want to ask you one more question before we close. So uh, imagine that you were not in mathematics education. Uh, You'd never worked with Schoenfeld and you you weren't there at Michigan State. Can you imagine any kind of other alternative career that you might have done? Well, what's funny about this is that I I actually didn't... I've always liked mathematics, but I never... um, dreamed of being a math teacher. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I when I got into teaching, I actually um, tried to sell myself as an English teacher. Oh, yeah. Uh, even though my uh, my undergraduate background would never give me the credibility to do that. But I've <laughs> always had an interest in um, 
literature, you mm-hmm. know, especially Russian literature and, oh, yeah. uh, and film. Dostoevsky so. is one of my favorite authors. Oh, yeah? Of, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I could talk for hours. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I even... Um, I even took a couple of classes in Russian, Russian oh, lit. That's great. So before I before I decided to join Alan um, and uh, everyone at Berkeley, I actually was thinking about applying to uh, Slavic studies programs. Oh wow! So that could have been something. But I also would have been also very happy. Um, I'm from Chicago originally. I would have been more than happy also just uh, working for the Chicago Cubs. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's been a little bit more fun to be a Cubs fan in recent years, maybe than in the 20th century. Yes. <laughs> yeah, m- much better few years, but uh, you know, decades of heartache taught me about loyalty so well i might have to talk to you about that off the air because i'm a detroit lions fan in football so we have literally had decades of being like the worst team in the league but i'm still my heart is like with the lions and uh you know every time they can win or beat the packers uh i'm I'm very happy and i'm just waiting for that day when we'll win a playoff game (laughs) it's been you know 18 years in in the making or something yeah so we're we're definitely on the same page about that yeah (laughs) I think it. I think the uh, the struggling decades can just really show you who the true fans are. And <laughs> well, Nero, it was a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, thank you so much, and you know, send our thanks to uh, Dan as well for this great work that you're doing. Thanks a lot, Sam. <laughs>